Okay. Well, we are starting Genesis chapter 22 and uh, uh, going through the book of Genesis and studying the life of Abraham for the last actually 30 lessons or so. I've noticed we've been on Abraham for a while. <laughs> of course, he is a major part of the story. And, uh, and we come now really in chapter 22 to kind of the climax. I think of it as the climax of the story of, uh, of Abraham. Um, I don't know, you may think of other points of his life as being the climax, maybe the point at which Isaac is born or whatever, but I think, I really think this is uh, in many ways, uh, to me certainly, is the climax, and I think it's viewed by many others uh, also as really, really kind of the pinnacle. This is the mountaintop, uh, if you will, of this whole epic of Abraham's life and his story. So it really is an important passage. It's, inter- it's incredibly important as far as Abraham and his story is concerned. It is obviously, as we'll see as we go forward in this story, uh, is a, a crucial theological point, uh, a theological story with theological implications that we'll get into as we go through the story. We don't want to hurry through it. Uh, so we'll, we'll take as much time as we need, but, but there's far more here than we could ever really take time to explore. So, uh, so we will take some time on the story, but, uh, but there will always be more for you to think about and contemplate. Just uh, by way of point of reference, <coughs> uh, I know we're going back three weeks here and you know, when we get to be our age, that's a little bit difficult to remember that far back, okay? But uh, <coughs> three weeks ago, we were uh, in the story there of Abraham and Abimelech as they negotiated over uh, and entered into a, excuse me, a covenant together regarding the well at Beersheba. And we talked about that. Uh, just to kind of refresh your mind, uh, there was some dispute about the possession of the well and who had rights to the well, and they entered into a covenant agreement together. And the point that we were, were making is that Beersheba becomes, uh, in, uh, becomes one of those places in the life of Abraham. There are, as we go through the story of the life of Abraham, there are these various places that have significance in his life. We saw that clear back in chapter 12 as we started the story. Uh, there was the the uh, the incident or his his coming initially when he first came from Haran into into the promised land, the land of promise. His first he, he visits Shechem, and and we have there the place of decision at Shechem. We go then to Bethel, and it's that place of a deepening commitment and a deepening walk with God. And then he goes on south to Hebron and to the Negev, and the Negev represents that place of of living faithfully with the promises of God. Later we find him. And then at the Oaks of Mamre, and it's, it's there at the Oaks of Mamre where God comes to him and they sit down and they eat and they commune together. And, uh, and uh, once again, the promise is renewed or, or restated, but, but there at the Oaks of Mamre, it was really stated more for Sarah's benefit than for Abraham's benefit, we saw. But there's that, that place, the Oaks of Mamre. And I cannot imagine that Abraham in his life uh, as in, in the years that followed, and there were many years after that, whenever he came to memory or whenever he passed by memory, he must have always stopped and thought about that that one afternoon sitting under that tree there the, uh, by the Oaks of Memory and eating a meal with God 
and fellowshipping with God. So there are these places of significance. And then we come, uh, as we did in, uh, in our last uh, uh, lesson, we came to Beersheba and we have the whole issue there. And the significance, uh, the significance there is that Beersheba becomes the first place in Abraham's life where he actually has a tangible piece of the promise in regard to the land. Now, he has just, as we saw, Isaac has just been born. So Isaac is a small child at this point, probably about two or three years of age. So he has, uh, he really has the first kind of two tangible seals, if you will, that the promise of God is being fulfilled in his life. He has this child who is the, who is the seal of the fulfillment of the promise of the descendants of the heir of all that part of the promise. And now he has this little hole in the ground, a well, and it's clear down there in the southern part of the land of Canaan. He has this hole in the ground, which is essentially his by covenant with Abimelech. And this is his, this is kind of his, his purchase, his piece of land, uh, if you will, uh, his seal that the, in fact he is going to have this land, that this whole land is going to be given to him. So it really becomes a significant place. And as we go forward, in the story and we talk about Isaac and we talk about Jacob, Beersheba will come up again and again. So it becomes a significant place in this whole story of Abraham and his descendants. So it is a very important place. And we talked, if you remember, we talked about the importance of the places of our lives. God made us as physical human beings, which means that we have to live in a place. And, and, and we saw clear back at the beginning of Genesis in Genesis chapter uh, two, where God creates Adam and Eve and then he creates this beautiful garden. He puts them in a place. And, and what we see about God is that, that places make a difference to God, that places are significant to God. And as we go through the whole story of redemption uh, over and over again, God emphasizes places. Okay? And those places uh, that we encounter in our, our lives represent various stages, various aspects of our relationship with God. And so, so places are very important to God and they are important to us. And we think about places. There are, as I mentioned, there are places in my life that are particularly profound and significant. And when I contemplate those places or when I come back to those places or visit those places again, they cause me to think about my life and my relationship with God and, the, and, and, and where I was at that time and what God was doing at my, in my life at that particular juncture. And I could go on and on and on about that. <clears throat> but now we come to the story uh, uh, that unfolds here in Genesis chapter 22. The old rabbis uh, referred to this as the binding of Isaac. Okay, And that's kind of the, the, the name that this particular story uh, has, uh, has come to possess or be known by and and it is of course this event in the life of Abraham where now that he has this son that has been so long promised and waited for and he now has him and he has grown as we will see now probably to his late adolescence or early teens that he comes to this point where God asks him or tells him uh, as the case may be to come and or to go and give his uh, burn his son as a burnt sacrifice or a burnt offering to the Lord. Okay, it's an incredible passage. It's filled with all kinds of pathos and drama and and uh, just uh, gut wrenching, if you will, uh, uh, things that are going on here in the life of Abraham and certainly probably also in the life of Isaac. Uh, and uh, and and this is where we have come, but. But let's think for a minute about uh, the timing. Of the, well, let's read. Let's read the first eight verses, and then we'll 
Uh, then we'll go on and look at some more introductory thoughts. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Excuse me, this may be a hard lesson to get through. He starts out in verse 1, he says, Now it came about after these things, and of course the first question comes to our mind, what is the timing, what's going on here? We've already talked a little bit about the context. Uh, Perhaps really the only real key or clue to uh, to the time that has elapsed since the last events and where we are actually in the life of Abraham and Isaac as far as age is concerned comes in his description of him placing the wood on Isaac's back and them going on together. They're obviously going to climb a mountain together or, uh, or climb a, a steep uh, incline together. And Abraham or Isaac is burdened down with all of the wood that's necessary <coughs> for this burnt offering, which <coughs> uh, presumably was a sizable amount of wood. I can't imagine that it would be anything other than quite a bit of wood. So the indication is that Isaac has at least reached a sufficient age uh, where he has the physical stamina and the physical stature to be able to accomplish this. So most commentators can concede that he must have been at least uh, his late adolescence or probably more likely at least in his early teen years by the time we reach this point. As we get on in the story, we'll find that Abraham actually, as a man who is by now 110 to 115 years of age, actually lifts his son up and puts him on the altar. So he's not... He's not a full-grown man yet, and Abraham himself refers to him as a lad here in the story. So he's not a full-grown man, but he's obviously big enough that he can, he can do this physical work that is described in the passage. So, so that gives us some clue then as to the timing that we have now, since, uh, since the last major indication that we've had of, of Isaac's age, which would have been at his weaning when he was about two or three years of age, we have now advanced about another 10 or 12 years, presumably. Okay. So Abraham is by now, as I said, probably 110, 115, probably closer to 115 years 
of age. Okay, Isaac himself uh, is in his early teens as this story unfolds. And and if we could just think about what has gone on now in the life of Abraham since since the last story that we encountered, which was the story of Abimelech there uh, at Beersheba. We have now Abraham, just kind of picture him. He has, you know, he, he had God's instruction when he was in Haran to, to go and, and, and go to the land of promise. And he had those promises from God. And he went, uh, he went uh, 35 years earlier. He left and he went down to Canaan according to the promise of God. And then for 25 years ago, he wandered about as an alien in the land of promise and he kept waiting and waiting and waiting for God uh, to fulfill this promise of an heir and of descendants that God had given to him and which God periodically would renew that promise, restate that promise for him. And so for all those years, 25 years or so, he's waiting for this son. He's, he's going through this kind of struggle of faith that, that Karen was talking about a little bit earlier here. He's, he's going through this struggle of faith, trying to rest in God, trying to, to, to just, just maintain his confidence that God is going to fulfill and complete this promise. And, and, and so I, you know, I, as I read that story, and as we've talked about it over the last many months that we've been talking about Abraham, I, I picture a guy who really believes God and trusts God, but for whom faith is at times a struggle. And, uh, and there are times we saw in the story where he goes to God and he says, okay, God, now God, now how do I really know this for sure? Okay. And, and so God gives him the assurances that he does give him. So there is some element of struggle there in the life of Abraham as he wrestles with those issues. But now, in the last 10 or 15 years, things have changed. Abraham is living, presumably, in Beersheba, the, the majority, if not all, of this time. He's living there in Beersheba. He's got a piece of land, which everybody now agrees with him by covenant. It's, it's, it's his land. It's his well. And, and he's there. And he's got possession of it. And uh, so things are going well as far as the land is concerned. And, and he's having that remarkable privilege that any of us that are parents have experienced that remarkable privilege of watching our children grow up. Okay, so he's sitting there and he's watching this this son, Isaac, as he matures and grows from just being a little infant crawling around a little rug rat. You know, until he grows and he, he watches him, he sits across the breakfast table from, as you will, uh, if you will, from him every morning and looks at him and he realizes this is the promise of God. God has been faithful to me and God has given me this son. And here he is and I'm, and I'm watching him grow and I'm watching him learn and I'm watching him when he's out playing among the sheep and the camels and that sort of thing. And, and, and I'm watching him as he's sitting with his tutor and being tutored and instructed in all the various things that, that a child of that age and in that culture would have been instructed in. And Abraham, so what I'm trying to picture for you here is that for 10 or 15 years now, Abraham has been enjoying this, this privilege of living in the, in the realized promise of God. Okay. And he's, and he's experiencing this, this goodness of knowing that God has been faithful, that God has been good to him, that, that he now has, if you will, the down payment on, on these promises of God. He, they're, they're actually his. They're tangible things he can touch. He can touch this son. He can actually go, this is him. This is, the, this is the down payment. He can look at that well and go, okay, I know. God told me it's going to be 400 years yet before my people really possess this land. But here's... Here's a piece of it that really belongs to me now. And so this is, 
this is the framework. This is the frame of reference that Abraham is in as he is just enjoying living the life of a believer who has realized the blessing and the promise of God. And much of our lives is spent that way, isn't it? Much of our lives is spent that way. And as we contemplate that, the, the narrator here, Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he introduces this passage to us, informs us, before he goes on with the story at all, he informs us about the nature of what is to happen and the nature of what we are about to read. Now, unfortunately for Abraham, he didn't get this little prelude. He didn't get verse 1. Okay? He, uh, he, 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 he just gets verse 2. Okay, he gets to the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, but he doesn't get the first part of verse 1, which is what? This is a test. Yeah. It's like when you're listening to the radio, you know, and they get ready to interrupt your favorite radio program with that stupid signal, you know, and they go, okay, this is a test, you know. So it puts, it puts what's about to happen, what you're listening to, in a context so you don't panic, okay? Well, that's what the narrator is doing for us here. That's what Moses is doing for us here. He's putting it in a context. He's warning us, this is a test. He wants us to put it in context. And this is important because, as you remember, the book of Genesis was first written for the children of Israel out in the wilderness, right? And they are getting ready to go into a land in which child sacrifice is a very common practice, as it was in the days of Abraham, okay? And God wants them to understand the context. And the context is, this is a test. It was never God's intention that Isaac actually be burned up in a burnt offering. That was never his intention. It, and he wants us to understand as readers that this is a test so that we have this all in context and that we understand that God is not... Uh, God, God's character has not changed or he has not gone back on his character or that, that God in any way condones or approves of child sacrifice. The problem is for Abraham is he doesn't have the knowledge we have. First of all, God didn't come to him first when he first says to him, Abraham, and Abraham responds. He doesn't say, now, Abraham, this is a test. Don't panic. Okay? He doesn't tell him that. Abraham doesn't know it's a test. But there's something else that Abraham doesn't really know for certain. Is that he doesn't know for certain that it is contrary to, to God's moral character to offer a human sacrifice. He doesn't know that. That hasn't been clearly defined yet. It will be clearly defined. And there will come a time when God will explicitly state in the law the prohibitions against child sacrifice and human sacrifice. Now, why is, why is human sacrifice so offensive to God? Because we're made in His image. Okay. First of all, because we're made in His image. That's the first thing. But there's another reason. Do you remember what the psalmist says when he says that... Uh, uh, verse slips my mind here exactly how he says it but the idea is no man should redeem his brother or he should cease trying forever why he says because the redemption of his soul is costly remember that verse in the Psalms okay 
The, the reason human sacrifice is one, one reason is because, as you said, we're made in the image of God. And the other reason is because human sacrifice is pointless. It doesn't accomplish anything. Okay? I can offer my life as a sacrifice for you, but it won't do any good. The redemption of your soul is costly. Okay? There is only one human sacrifice that is sufficient to atone for the sins of man. And that's the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God. Okay, so so we understand now in, in our context, we understand how offensive and repulsive the idea of human sacrifices is to the moral character of God. But Abraham doesn't have that understanding and he lives in a culture in which it's commonly practiced or at least practiced to some degree. It's practiced in Canaan. It was practiced back in Mesopotamia where he came from. So he's familiar with this. So now when God comes to him and he doesn't have this clear understanding that we by later revelation have, he doesn't have that clear understanding and God says to him, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your son and go over here and offer a burnt offering. When God does that, Abraham doesn't have the knowledge that you and I have. And therein lies the test, right? Therein lies the test for Abraham that God is asking him to do something or telling him to do something and Abraham doesn't have full knowledge. And therein lies the test for us, doesn't it? Most of our tests would be a great deal easier in life if God would just lay it all out in black and white for us beforehand, wouldn't it? If God would just say to us, okay, now here's what I'm going to do and here's what you can expect. You know, it would have been very nice for Job had before the Lord allowed Job to be assailed the way he was assailed, if the Lord had just sent him an angel and said, okay, now Job, this is going to be rough, but here's what I'm doing. We've got an argument up here in heaven and I need to settle this argument once and for all. Okay? So this is what I'm doing and, and, and you're going to be my little illustration here. Okay? But Job didn't know that. So he goes through this whole 42 chapter experience that we read about unaware of what God is doing. And it's interesting that God really it never, ever tells him uh, in the context of the book. God never really even tells him what he's doing. OK, well, that's the nature of test. The nature of test is that you and I operate within a, a limited sphere of knowledge. And Abraham is operating within a limited sphere of knowledge. And so that we will understand what's going on, God gives us that knowledge that he didn't give to Abraham. And he didn't give it to Abraham because if Abraham had it, it wouldn't have been a test. Okay? The test is, the test is by nature a test because he doesn't have understanding. Okay? So it's very important for us to understand as we proceed in this story, this is a test. Now, Abraham is going along in this, in this uh, relationship with, uh, in this relationship with God. And uh, I like the way, I like the way uh, one uh, writer has put it, uh, Bruce Waltke in his commentary, uh, on Genesis cites a guy by the name of Landy and Landy says this. He says, there is a background of recognition speaking about this story in this passage. There is a background of recognition of the special intimacy of Abraham and God into whose easy discourse the brutal command erupts. 
And I thought that describes it so well. We have Abraham who's been living now for 10 or 15 years in kind of this, uh, this kind of blessing of God's provision and God's faithfulness. And, you know, I'm sure he had problems. I'm sure he had, you know, camels that died unexpectedly and arguments with his wife. And he had the normal day-to-day problems. But in general, life was good. And he was now realizing and seeing the fulfillment of the promise of God in his life. And, and we do see between God and Abraham, Abraham is called the friend of God. And I've been thinking a lot about that in the last couple of weeks, this whole idea of what it means to be a friend of God. And Abraham and God are friends. Okay. And so there is to some degree between God and Abraham, as this man Landy uh, suggests, a, uh, an easy discourse between them. And so to Abraham, this... This thing comes just out of nowhere. God says to him, Abraham, and how many times has God heard that? I mean, has Abraham heard that? How many times has Abraham, has God come to Abraham and, and, and told him things or entered into his life or, or revealed secrets to him that he wouldn't reveal to anybody else? And all these intimacies of their relationship. And, and Abraham hears the voice of God again saying, Abraham, Abraham, and And Abraham just immediately says, here I am, Lord, here I am. And then, as Landy says, this brutal command erupts. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains I will show you. I cannot imagine what's going through the life and going through the mind of Abraham at this point. Can you? I cannot imagine that. It just is so incomprehensible. You see, this is this is not a story about some kind of, you know, really moving commitment service at a conference or at the end of a worship service. This is not this is not just some some dramatization, if you will, some allegory, if you will, of, of, a, of a dedication service for Abraham. Now, I'm all for dedication services and commitment services and those kinds of things. You know, we've, most of us have been in them or seen them or been a part of them and participated in them. There's a, there's a place for there's a There's a place for those times at the end of a particularly meaningful worship service or or maybe at a particularly uh, meaningful conference that we've attended or or series of messages that we've attended and you you come to the end and there's this call for commitment and we you know and and however you know we express that whether it's being called to go down to the to the altar or just you know, filling out a commitment card or just in the privacy of your own heart and your mind, you just make a renewed commitment to God. But that's not what we're talking about here. 
Because really all that, all those dedications and commitments we make to God, all of those are absolutely meaningless unless they are tested. And Abraham can talk commitment all day long. But what God wants to demonstrate is the reality. And so he's going to walk Abraham through this excruciating experience in order to prove that Abraham fears God and that Abraham trusts God and that Abraham loves the giver more than the gift. And God is going to prove that. But He can't prove that in a commitment service. He can't can't prove it in an altar call. He can only prove it if He walks Abraham through this test. And I want you to notice the agonizing specificity with which God tells Abraham what he wants. You notice that? He identifies the object of the offering four times. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Four times God identifies the object of the offering. Now, I don't know all the reasons why he does that, but I I can surmise a few. And one of the things I think God is doing here is I think God is short-circuiting every argument that Abraham can raise, right? No matter what Abraham says, God has already said, that's what I want. But God, he's my son. That's what I want. I want your son. But you don't understand, God. You had me send Ishmael away. This now is my only son. Yeah, that's what I want. I want your only son. God, you don't understand how much I love him. Yes, I want the son you love. But God, this is Isaac. This is laughter. This is the fulfillment of the promise. This is the heir of the promise. Yeah, that's what I want. I want Isaac. I want laughter. I want the fulfillment of the promise. It's like it's like God has God has anticipated every objection Abraham could raise. And it's left Abraham absolutely speechless. There's nothing Abraham can say. There's not, there's, in other words, there's nothing that God has asked for that God has not already considered. And if He does that with Abraham, doesn't He do that with you and me? You know, when He asked me and He asked you these, these very difficult things and he, he, he allows us to walk through these very difficult tests and we go to God, God, did you forget? God, do you not know there's, 
there's this or there's this or there's this. But in this story of Abraham, what we learn is that, yes, he has thought about all of that. He knows all of that. He knows how much Abraham loves him. He knows he's his only son. He knows he's the heir of the promise. He knows all those things. And there's, there's comfort in that to me. When I face these tests that seem so insurmountable and so impossible, and even, if you will, so unreasonable for God to ask me to go through. But they are not unreasonable. And in fact, God has not only thought about all these things, given careful consideration to all these things that are the objections that I would raise. But they are the very reasons he's picked that sacrifice. He didn't ask Abraham to go take a a lamb or a camel or anything else from his flock. He didn't ask him to take one of his servants. God specifically picked the thing that was the dearest and the most important to Abraham. Because only in that did the test really lie. And so it is in our lives and so it is in our experiences. That God touches those things that are dearest and closest to us. in order that He might know, do we fear Him more than anything else? Do we love Him more than anything else? So, So God asked this of him. I, I keep saying ask. And I, I, I want to throw in a little thing here. You may not pick it up. I don't know what translation you have. But you'll notice in verse 2 it says, He said, take now your son. Okay. That word now is translated in my translation. It's, uh, is translated now here in the New American. In the King James, I believe it's translated now. Uh, some translations in the International and uh, English Standard Version uh, don't even translate the word. They leave it untranslated. Okay. What's interesting is that word could be translated as please. Okay, now, I, I don't know if that's a legitimate translation here. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm just working on the beginnings of Greek, okay? So, I, I, I don't know here, and I'm not going to state dogmatically, but there is a possibility here that God is asking for a free will offering. Uh, <clears throat> you can make of that what you want. Uh, and... Uh, I'm not going to give you a definitive answer on that. I, I, so I don't know specifically. I tend to lean towards it being an explicit command, but there is a possibility that it is, in fact, a request for a free will offering. And some greater scholars than I will have to resolve that issue. But that's something for you to study if you're interested in it. <clears throat> but I keep saying God asks. That's one of the reasons why I say God asks him is because there is that possibility that that is, in fact, what's going on here. <clears throat> but he, So God tells him to to give his son and God is very specific and he lays it all out very specifically for him. Now, I want you to notice what the Holy Spirit has done for us here as he inspires our narrator, Moses, to, be, to tell us this story here. I, I, I don't know if you notice this, but there's a lot of repetition. you see that? The words son or my son or his son, etc., etc., 
Those words are repeated six times in eight verses. In the eight verses we looked at, they're repeated more as we go on. Okay. <clears throat> the word burnt offering is repeated four times in eight verses. The phrase, they walked on together, is repeated two times in three verses. There's a lot of repetition here. And something else that's interesting about this passage is how tedious it is. And I don't know if you notice that, because there's so much pathos and drama here that maybe you don't notice how tedious it is. But as, as, as the narration unfolds for us, we're, just being given, we're being given all these little details. Okay, did you notice that? Okay, take the land of Moriah. I'm going to show you this land. And so there's this land. And, and, and we, we learn it's three days away. And, 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 and then we see Abraham. He, he gets up early in the morning. Okay, and then he saddles his donkey. And then he, then he goes gets his two servants, his two young men that are going to go with him. Some of this stuff is really irrelevant to the point of the story, right? I mean, what difference does the donkey make? What difference does it make that he saddled his donkey? What difference does it make that he went out and split the wood? I mean, you know, he could just say he took the wood. Why do we have to know he went out and split the wood? There's all this kind of tedious, almost extraneous detail. But, of course, it's not extraneous because the Holy Spirit's put it in here, right? Okay. So there's some reason why Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has seen it important for the story to be encumbered with all these little details. And I think one of the reasons, and most commentators uh, that I've looked at uh, agree that one of the reasons is God doesn't want us to get too quick from the command to the the final act of obedience there on the mountain. He wants us to make make it for us a very slow, agonizing process. He wants us to contemplate every step that Abraham does along the way. He gets up early in the morning. He saddles his donkey. He goes out and he selects two servants. Now, I was just thinking yesterday, there's a lot in that. In that whole thing about the two servants. Really, they don't really have any bearing ultimately on the ultimate story. But when you think about it, Abraham gets up early in the morning. He picks two servants. How did he pick those two servants? Why did he pick those two servants? And when did he decide which two servants he would pick? I'll tell you when he picked them. Since he got up early in the morning, when did he pick them? Pardon? I I can't hear you. The two that were up early. Okay. (laughs) That may be a lesson. (laughs) The early bird gets well. (laughs) Okay. When did he decide who he'd pick? If he got up early in the morning and picked him, when did he decide which two he would pick? Or in the middle of the night? Have you thought about that night? That's a long night. He's got to think about who's going to go with us. Because he's got to remember that whoever goes with them is also going to come back knowing what happened. How do you pick those two guys? 
What else did he think about in the middle of the night? How do you tell Isaac? When do you tell Isaac? And that's one of the things that I think the narrator is trying to do for us here is he's trying to get us to stop and think about this stuff. He doesn't give us the explicit answers because it's not the answers that are important. But what is important is that we not rush through this thing. That we not go from verse 2 to verse whatever it is down here uh, later that we'll get to hopefully next week when he actually lifts the knife or reaches out for the knife. Okay, We, we could just blitz right to that. But the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to blitz right to that. He wants us to realize that for Abraham, this was a slow, agonizing, three-day process of moving to Moriah. This didn't happen in his backyard. Moriah is 45 to 55 miles away from Beersheba. It took him three days to get there. He didn't do this in his backyard. This is not something that God just said and then Abraham could just impulsively get up and get it done with and get it over with before he had time to think about it. And so the narrator encumbers our story with all these tedious details because these are all things that Abraham had to do and think about and encounter as he is moving from Beersheba to Moriah. Why does he do that? Why is it so important to the Holy Spirit that we not rush through this story? Well, I think of three reasons. One is, I think the Holy Spirit really wants us to understand what Abraham went through. He doesn't want us to hurry through this story so fast that we don't stop and think about Abraham saddling that donkey and picking those two guys and out there splitting wood. What was he thinking about? with every log he split. This wood is going to consume my son. What is he thinking about those three days as they travel? What is he thinking about at that moment that he finally sees that mountain in the land of Moriah before his eyes. What's he thinking about when he says to the two servants, we will go and worship and return to you. What's he thinking about as he's placing the wood for the sacrifice on his son's back? What's he thinking about when he picks up the pot of fire and the knife in his hand? What's he thinking about as he walks on, I believe silently, as I'll show you in a minute if we have time here, as he walks on silently with his son? What's he think about when that inevitable question comes from his son? The question he's been dreading all along. Where is the lamb? 
What is he thinking about as he says twice in the passage and the two walked on together? He wants us to he wants us to contemplate that because he wants us to understand the significance of Abraham's faith. He is the father of faith. He's the father of our faith. And he wants us to understand how great is Abraham's fear of God and how great is Abraham's faith and how great is Abraham's love for God. He wants us to understand that. I think there's another reason why he does it. It's because every single one of us, maybe not to the intensity or at the level that Abraham has experienced, but every single one of us has experienced great and overwhelming tests. And sometimes, oftentimes, those tests have gone on far longer than we could ever imagine. And oftentimes in our prayers, we have cried out to God and we have said, Oh God, how long? And God wants us to find fellowship in the sufferings of Abraham. God wants us to find comfort. God wants us to find in the life of Abraham that there is another who has walked these steps before us. And to find in his suffering and in his anguish and in his struggle comfort for our suffering and our anguish and our suffering, our struggle. But there's a third reason, and I think this is really the ultimate reason. He wants us to understand John 3.16. You see, we often talk about the sacrifice of Christ, and we often talk about what Christ went through and what Christ endured and what Jesus went through. We talk often about that, and we ought to. That's very important. But it is interesting to me that in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, what does Jesus point to in John 3.16? Not His love, but the love of the Father. And one of the things I think God wants us to contemplate in, in this experience of Abraham, this three-day-long anguish that Abraham encounters there, as he moves from Beersheba to Moriah, one of the things he wants us to contemplate is that our Heavenly Father has moved from Beersheba to Moriah too. But there's a difference. When Abraham took his son to Moriah, his son was spared. When my, when my Heavenly Father took his son to Moriah, his son was not spared. He was offered up for my sin. And he was offered up for your sin. And as we'll see as this passage unfolds and we go forward more in it next week, as we'll see, this clearly, this passage is, is, a, is a picture for us. A graphic picture for us of what Christ has done and what God has done, what the Father has done for us. And so it's very clear to me that one of the things that the Father wants us to understand is that while Abraham walked to Moriah over a period of three days. God walked to Moriah ever since the fall. 
And ever since that fall in the garden, God had been moving relentlessly, purposely, intentionally to Moriah. Taking his son to Moriah. And the Holy Spirit has forced us to take time to think about this process because He wants us to understand the greatness of Abraham's love and Abraham's faith in God. And He wants us to find comfort and encouragement in our own test and our own struggle. But most of all, He wants us to understand how great is the Father's love. And what He endured so that you and I might know the forgiveness of sins. Well, there's much more in the passage, so we'll go on next week and we'll just keep going. We'll finish this and we probably will get some into the next verses.